Amen. Please be seated, and please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 4. I have it on an insert with an outline, a little more to this outline than normal to help you follow. Peter and John, they healed a man who suffered from lifelong paralysis. It's still in this same story within 24 hours. The man they healed was 40 years old, and he had never been able to walk in the whole of his life. Everyone who frequented the temple knew this man and his condition and his story. Um, he was placed by friends in the temple on a daily basis in the courtyard as people came in and went in and came out to beg for alms so that he could provide for himself sustenance. And Peter and John healed the man as an act and show of mercy and also for a platform to preach the message of the gospel of Christ and his resurrection. This caused a bit of a commotion that was noticed by the Jewish officials, the authorities, and they had them arrested, Peter and John, maybe even the man. The man was with them the next day when they were questioned, threw them into a jail for the night, and then tried them in the next day, asking many questions. Now, these were the same, these were the same people who led the trial of Jesus, turned him over to the Romans to be executed. So clearly there would be great duress and stress over this. This is the first episode of people who are associated with Christ publicly being opposed and persecuted. It's the start of a long history of this, we're still in it, where Christians are persecuted because of their alliance with Jesus. A close call here, they were questioned, harassed, and threatened, but then released because the authorities were worried about the opinions of the people who saw the miracle and believed. Peter and John released. We pick up the story at verse 23. Please follow as I read. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Acts 4, starting at verse 23. I'll read to verse 32. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined them to take, predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are encouraged by your holy word, and we'd love to read what you have for us here, what you have done. 
Please send your spirit so that we might understand what you have revealed and so that we could make the proper applications to our lives, that we would think differently and live differently as a result of being exposed to your word by the ministry of your spirit. Please give us zeal to seek you regularly. Give us unity as believers and boldness as witnesses for Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are studying these, this book of Acts, and in these early chapters, we are certainly moved and motivated by this beautiful picture of the early church's devotion, its simplicity, um, and its zeal for Christ. In this growing boldness, um, we have a beautifully effective Christian church here before us, especially when they're confronted with the first show of opposition and persecution that we have seen in the biblical record. This story depicts the ongoing work of Christ through the apostles and his church to expand his kingdom. The passage is also a bit of a picture for us about how Christians might respond to opposition and persecution. I mean, in reality, it's just a picture of how the church should function or act or practice, especially prayer and unity. We see these things interwoven. If you just look at the passage, they pray. Most of the passage is a prayer, a particular prayer that they pray in response to Peter and John coming back to them released. But in that prayer, multiple words feed this idea of unity, unity of heart and soul, as the passage says. So they're praying, and they're unified, and they're focused on God's Word. In their prayer, they quote from Scripture, Psalm 2, and then there's a boldness that comes from this unifying prayer. So prayer and unity, this is the way I would like to approach the passage, and you see on your outline I've divided it this way. Let's look at the prayer that they pray, see what's said. It gives us a bit of a pattern. It's always good to study the prayers in Scripture, connect them with when Jesus says, this is how you pray, the Lord's Prayer that we pray every week, and watch how they mesh and they match, and they give us further affirmation about how we might pray, how we must think when we pray. So there's that aspect, and then the unity that you see being built up, the prayer comes from that unity, and the unity of the believers at this time becomes even stronger, and there's purpose for that as well. Both demonstrated prayer and unity in the passage before us. Now, first prayer as we enter the passage a bit. I want you to think about the different ways in which we practice prayer as believers and as a body of Christ, the local body of Christ. Um, let me do it in the form of a bit of an analogy. Um, when a coach is training a team in the fall, it's usually late summer when they start, and according to our state in Kansas, every 20 to 30 minutes, you are supposed to stop whatever you're doing, especially it's in, when it's in extreme heat, and have all the participants get water. I know in some states, it's actually like a law. You have to do this. A coach is responsible for this. There'll be a trainer there who will note the time, and at that time, blow the whistle. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a full-out scrimmage, you have to stop and go get water. It's set so that the players don't get dehydrated and get sick or worse. And so it's set for their safety to help keep them healthy. An analogy to prayer would be the way we have set times to touch base, to pray to God as believers. Now, we do this in set ways. It may be informal, but many of us before meals, we've just become accustomed to praying at those times, really contemplating God's provision for us. Some people, when they get up first thing in the morning, they spend time in the Word and they pray. Um, also, before they go to bed, maybe the same thing. Um, also, there's set prayer times we have as a church. We come together in our service. You know there are prayers that we pray throughout. Sometimes they're led by one of the elders. Sometimes we read the prayer. We engage in them. They're set 
to help us stay strong, stay connected to our communion with God, going before his presence through Christ, and we have this kind of prayer throughout. There's another kind of prayer, though, that is practiced among believers, both corporately and individually, and the analogy for that would be like this. Um, You have a parent of a senior in high school, and you're going to go on a college visit. Um, For many reasons, both parents can't go, and so you take that senior student, and you go through the, some of the classes, you meet advisors, you talk to this person or that representative, maybe coaches or heads of departments, and you have this big visit that they put together, and you get to sit in on a class. Well, mom or dad can't be there, so whoever's at the trip, during the trip, is sending texts back to say what they're learning, what they're discovering, what they're seeing. Uh, maybe the student's doing the same thing. So the one who can't go or is not there can be made aware of what's happening as it goes. And the person's excited to share this with their partner. It's a big deal when your kid's going away like this. You want to make a good choice. And so you're engaging in spontaneous, regular, it's not really scheduled. It's, oh, I learned something else and I send it along. Now, the analogy isn't to say that God is there waiting, wondering, because that's not God. But the analogy fits for the person who's doing all the texting. It's like, as things come up, you want to share that. As things come up, we want to share that with God. When events happen, we want to go to God about them. When decisions confront us immediately, we want to talk to the Lord about them. And that's what you have happening in this episode. Uh, A huge uh, trauma has just happened as Peter and John were arrested. Most of them, I'll bet you thought they were going to die. I mean, this is the same tribunal that had Jesus crucified. Why would Peter and John be able to escape it? So when Peter and John do escape it by God's intervention... There's a spontaneous worship and prayer that happens right out. And that really should be something that we're practiced in, that we do on a regular basis, spontaneously thanking God or asking God to guide, direct, bring his will. The early church in this passage that we're looking at, their reaction to this persecution or this oppression, it really presents to us a timeless pattern for believers in any age, in any epoch. And I think we'll learn a lot by looking at it this way. Prayer communion with God, speaking to our Lord, our Father in heaven. That's our response to everything, but especially in times like this when oppression and persecution come. Look at verse 23. When they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends. His friends were waiting for them and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, the whole story. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, So their reaction, their response is to go to God in prayer. Now, let's remember what prayer is before we take apart the prayer itself, and that's what we'll do. And I've outlined it for you so you can follow. But what is prayer? Let's be clear about this. Prayer is, yes, talking to God, but it's taking our desires to God before his throne to have them confirmed or denied. That's really what it is. Prayer is not to change God's mind or to make something happen that God did not ordain. That's often, people think of that that way, but if you think very hard about that, wow, that's scary. That, That God needs our prompting to do this or that. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is based on our knowledge, our growing knowledge of what Scripture says about God and His character and how He generally acts. As we study Scripture, we learn and we are able to pray more intelligently about whatever it is that we bring to God. Now, I want to be careful to say this. Prayer is something that grows over time for a believer as they come to know God better through his word, and then as they come to know other people who are older in the Lord and have seen God work over the years, know the scriptures very well, and can share 
their understanding of Scripture. So wherever you are in the faith, talk to God. Don't worry about making a doctrinal error when you talk to your Father in heaven. But as you grow, you'll learn how to pray in a way that becomes more specific and actually shapes your will towards his will, which is the ultimate goal of prayer. We should pray in all situations with our prayers, you might say, filtered through the Word of God. Our catechism in question 98 asks, what is prayer? And very simply captures all the biblical teaching by saying, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins, and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. It's a great encapsulating of all the Bible says about prayer. And what they do here is pray. Here, the people watch God's movement to heal the crippled man, and then his subsequent uh, preservation of Peter and John, the preaching of the gospel, meeting with such effect. Then they're arrested by the same court that arrested Jesus. They're not assuming persecution is over when they are released. Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. The occasion of Peter and John's release prompted a spontaneous prayer. Let's look at what this prayer is ordered like. First off, notice verse 24. We see that believing in God's biblically revealed sovereignty is the basis for their prayer. Uh, Put it this way. You don't go to someone who can't change the thing you want changed. You don't go ask them. They don't have power to do it. You only go to someone who has power to change the thing you're looking for change on or the answer you need. So believing that God is sovereign is why you go to God. Even if you don't say it in those terms, you only go to him because you think he can impact the situation. This is how they approach God. Verse 24, sovereign Lord, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Their response when their friends come back to them safe is sovereign Lord, an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God, the power of God. And the next phrase is just bolstering that they believe this. He's the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in all of it. It's a statement, it's a confession of the sovereign power of God, and they come to that God. It's that God who prompts prayer. Uh, He's the all-powerful God. It goes on in the prayer. Where do they go next? They go to Scripture and quote a passage from Scripture that bolsters the understanding about the sovereignty of God. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, and he's quoting Psalm 2 here, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together. What do they do? Against the Lord and against his anointed. It's, this, uh, it's a prayer or statement of frustration about how there's a raging that goes on among those who do not acknowledge God and his Savior Christ. It's, it's a picture of the world apart from God. They're, they're raging. Verse 27, continuing to root the prayer in the sovereign power of God, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. What he's saying is that what we just witnessed with Peter and John, with this aligning of all these different powers, these are the Gentiles raging. They're raging against you, God, and you're anointed. Look what they're doing. But the next verse gives us real insight about why they're praying these words. 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The oppression they were feeling, the persecution they were feeling, it's real. We see it. But God, you are sovereign. You had this happen. It's like saying, Lord, we know you could have this happen. It's within your prerogative as the divine one to have this persecution occur. You did this. So we're coming to you, the God who is sovereign over all this, with our request that will come soon. And the quote comes from Psalm 2, which is a psalm that champions God's sovereignty. They join with King David's frustration about the world rages, but they recognize at the same time the absolute sovereignty of God over even this situation. You anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Regarding the treacherous actions of the Romans and the Jews, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching on this says this, was the cross an accident? Was the cross a surprise? No, the cross was planned, foreordained, before the world was ever created. Before man was ever made, God had planned the death of Christ, his son. This is the explanation, and these first believers understood that about the sovereignty of God, and it's the foundation for the prayer that they utter when Peter and John come back safe. Their worship service in the shadow of persecution starts with a biblically-based prayer that acknowledges the sovereignty of God. And by the way, what is the sovereignty of God? What is meant? Steve Lawson gives a wonderful definition of this that's worth sharing. The sovereignty of God is not a secondary doctrine that is relegated to an obscure corner in the Bible. He goes on. Rather, this truth is the very bedrock doctrine of all Scripture. This is the Mount Everest of biblical teaching, the towering truth that transcends all theology. From its opening verse, the Bible asserts in no uncertain terms that God is and that God reigns. In other words, He is God, not merely in name, but in full reality. God does as He pleases, when He pleases, where He pleases, how He pleases, and with whom He pleases in saving undeserving sinners. All other doctrines of the Christian faith must be brought into alignment with this keystone truth. Lawson concludes, the sovereignty of God is the free exercise of His supreme authority in executing and administrating His eternal purposes. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is a a people who are committed to the sovereign actions of God and recognize that whatever God may will will come to pass, and it may even mean persecution, because even those events you control. It's to that God that we go to seek His will concerning. And notice the particular wording of verse 28. Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Sometimes people think that God made a plan and set it in motion. No, no. His providence is His hand intimately working in those details. He didn't make the clock and let it run. He is working out His plan. God's hand moves according to His plan. God's hand is not reactionary. It's bound to His will. God does what He plans no matter what. So acknowledging at the very beginning of prayer, acknowledging this about God unleashes us to pray for anything that may be our desire, wanting it to be according to his will, knowing that his will is where we will find actual joy in the long run. Psalm 2, you might notice, is only quoted in part by 
those praying. We don't know if it's Peter and John leading in the prayer and they all said amen and agreed. They prayed. Uh, but the beginning of Psalm 2 is, is spoken. Listen to the full of Psalm 2 because this is, a, again, it's bolstering the, the sovereignty of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, the ones who are raging. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He has set Christ. This is a wonderful pattern for prayer that we see, and it starts out with this being rooted in the sovereignty of God. Next, notice something else, that desiring God's glory or his fame or the spread of his kingdom for his namesake, that's what's desired in the outcome for the prayer. It's not to save them from persecution. That's not the reason to keep them from persecution in this case. Look at the wording, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Doesn't say stop us from having pain, stop us from being persecuted, stop this opposition or oppression. That's not the prayer. The prayer is specifically, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What we just saw with this crippled man, Lord, keep doing it. And, and may it be that your word is never hindered. It doesn't say, please stop them from being mean to us. Just let your word go forward. Let it keep going forward. Do not let it stop. That's the prayer. Uh, the prayer in the sovereign God who brought persecution. Bring it if that's your will, Lord. But please, Lord, don't let your word stop from being spread. The priorities here are so telling and teaching for us that we're praying whatever we pray for God's will and for his glory to be on display. In light of God's glorious sovereignty, they ask for several things. To allow for the apostolic witness about Christ to continue. For the, the signs that accompanied this, these works of mercy that gathered those audiences and confirmed that they were apostles. Please continue those, Lord. Please continuing, continue to expand the church so that you can be known, so that your glory can be seen. Grant your servants to continue to speak. Servants, we point to the master. That's what we're asking. Despite the opposition, let your name be glorified as the apostolic witness goes forward. Notice what they're not asking for. I might have been asking for this, but they didn't at this moment. Filled with the Spirit. They didn't say, pour down fire and brimstone upon your enemies so that we can preach the gospel. Now, it's true that in Psalm 2, God has an end for those who oppose the anointed one. We, I just read that. But what they're praying for isn't that. They're praying, verse 29, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Lord, however you do it, just make it so that the apostles in this time frame, their disciples, us now, that we could speak in all boldness the message of the gospel of Christ. Also, I want you to see something else about this prayer. We can see it demonstrated. God always, always, always answers such a prayer. He never denies a prayer for his glory. He never pray, denies a prayer for the fulfillment of his will. Now, for us, we want to be in line with his will. We don't always know it, so we pray. We search the scripture. We pray. But God answers that prayer ultimately in all things when we're praying for his glory. Look at verse 31, how the answer comes to them immediately. 
in this form. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Reminds us back of Acts 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, all of us as believers, if you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. This is talking about that special empowerment of the Spirit to do certain things at certain times. It's the boldness that the Spirit gives. Uh, it's the courage that the Spirit gives. They were shaky. They were shaken themselves. In fact, um, John Stott and Derek Thomas quote John Chrysostom, the early church father, who preached a whole series on the book of Acts. And he said, the place was shaken, but they, the disciples, were unshaken. Once they were shaken by the ministry of the Spirit come upon them in this duress, this trauma they had been through, they became firm. They saw the answer to their prayer. God changed them, gave them courage. We see it in Peter, personified. And God granted them opportunity to speak for him. They were filled, all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness, uh, with boldness. Derek Thomas, um, who I alluded to earlier, says this, what is of special interest about this filling of the Holy Spirit is that it enabled the disciples to witness and speak. These ordinary men and women with no particular learning or training, without any evangelistic methods, were enabled to speak because they were filled with the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit, they were prepared to face opposition, beatings, imprisonments, and even death. Here's what I would encourage you with. It's true. God gives some people what I would say the Bible describes as a gift of evangelism. They're just able to share the message of the gospel of Christ with people, and God gives fruit to that, and they see people come to Christ. Most of us were intimidated by sharing our faith in Christ. It's near and dear to us. We, we want everyone to know it, but we get in those moments and we chicken out a bit. I mean, you would think as a pastor, I wouldn't be like this. Well, I try to f- make friends who are not believers just so I have opportunities to get into other people's lives and learn about them and see what God's doing in the world and give me also opportunity to share Christ with them. But usually what happens, it doesn't take long and they find out I'm a pastor somehow and then they shut down. And so uh, I always pray, Lord, just give a little more time before uh, they realize this so I can make a real relationship with them and then bring this because I'm just a little nervous to just say it to them right off the bat because I feel like as soon as they know I'm a pastor, the next thing needs to be something spiritual. I got to come up with something next. Okay, get over that idea for pastors and for us. Pray that God gives you opportunities and that he gives you his spirit special enablement to simply share the gospel with people. You will be amazed at how many opportunities you are to just say simply put, to share your story. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and the grace is in Christ who paid for my sins, and I believe on him. And you don't have to have the gift of evangelism to do that. You just have to be saved. There's no particular method here Just give testimony when you have opportunity wherever God's placed you, and you'll have many more opportunities than I will even. And God, the Spirit, will give you the boldness to speak the Word of God that you will need when that time comes. He will. Now, I want you to notice something else in this passage. This prayer goes forward, but there is also something that's demonstrable. There is a unique unity that we should all envy to some degree as a body of Christ. And we can experience it. I think we have moments of that for sure as a church, as groups of believers, as families. But early on, there was really a special uh, dose of this. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's such a difficulty to have unity even as believers. 
We're so different. There's so many things that come up. There's misunderstandings that occur. But when we strive after unity, it's a real show of the Spirit working in us, and it's really, really obvious here in the early church. In fact, in the passage before us, you'll see the togetherness, the unity that they exemplify. They're there waiting together for the apostles to come back. Um, They receive them when they're released. They together pray and worship God. Um, They're together all filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a a unity there. Their state of being, if you see in verse 32, is there one heart and one soul. Heart and soul or heart and mind, as some versions say. Um, they're, they're physically together, but they're there in heart as well. The practice of unity, it strengthens the church, and it's also a mark of the church. Uh, and I have on your outline a few points about this from the text. Uh, first of all, unity, just being together or having opportunity to be together actually and physically um, there are other things that support that. We are able to communicate in so many ways nowadays. But just being together and then having a, a united mind of sorts, too, around things, it just encourages us. And we need that encouragement. You, you sense that in verse 23 and 24. When they were released, they went to their friends. So the apostles themselves went to their friends. They went to gain that encouragement that comes from being together. They, they shared what had happened to them. They gave their testimony, if you will. And when they heard it, their friends... They lifted their voices together. I mean, it prompted this unified prayer together. They needed encouragement being separated from Peter and John, and Peter and John needed it too. Being together helped them deal with the duress they were under. When one member is hurting, they all hurt. Unity helps bear the load collectively. Unity is encouraging in this way. It also encourages a right response. They pray. You know, you're in a group of people. It's impromptu. It's not at a church service, and something occurs. I always praise God for that sensitive person who says, we should just stop and pray for this. That's a wonderful prompting of the Spirit to give us unity in prayer. A unified spirit encourages the whole of the body. Encouragement in our spirits comes from unity itself. They feed each other. We get encouraged by unity, and unity promotes encouragement that we sense together. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together. But notice what else unity promotes. It's along the lines of encouraging, but in particular, it builds boldness in us. Um, Collectively, we're stronger and more convicted when we come together and agree upon something. We're able to boldly or bravely proclaim it, and that's what we have depicted exactly for us in the text. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice this last phrase, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were in the Word of God, but now they're able to speak it with renewed or, or invigorated boldness about the message. And here's the thing. We live in the world. Uh, we live in a world, and the world is fundamentally, generally opposed to God. In the morals of the world, even in a more moral society, you might even put ours in that category if you can imagine, is based on the general conscience of the citizens. And so they have, in any given culture, a certain high point of their ethics. Well, that changes in every culture, and it's different in every culture. But we, the people of God, who have the Word of God, live in that culture. And there will be many times where the high norms of society aren't where God's norms are, whatever those norms may be, and we struggle under it as Christians. And we start to wonder, maybe we're the wrong ones here. Maybe Now, never mind that those cultures come and go, they fade, and they fizzle out. The Word stays, the flowers fade, the grass fades, but the Word of God stands. We don't think like that at moments when we're out there and we're getting pressed. But when you come together with believers and you go over what the Word of God says again, 
Um, you're subjected to what the Scripture says. The Spirit of God bolsters our understanding, and it gives us, the Spirit gives us bravery or boldness about what God's Word says, no matter what it's, the world says around us. That's always been a need of the church, and that's what you have here. Here they are, knowing persecution is starting to come, opposition is starting to come. Lord, please let us continue to speak. And now they're given a boldness because of the Spirit's ministry to preach and speak the Word of God. Unity, it gives us courage. It gives us, on a collective level, something we could not have individually. It's easy to be fearful and scared, but when you stand with others, we gain boldness when we need it. Finally, notice the unity that's displayed here. It promotes a a thinking and a practice. Now, verse 32 starts a whole new section that I'll begin next week, Lord willing, or two weeks from now, Lord willing. Um, But I wanted to conclude verse 32 because it is a sum total of what comes before it. It kind of captures who they were as the people of God at that time. And they were, it was, their focus on God and His glory was giving them clarity about the stuff of earth. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. To be united in heart and soul, it means that they were in agreement on a deep level. That's what it means. Their association was not shallow or superficial. It was deep and it was committed. Now, some translations say heart and mind um, to capture heart and soul. Verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. James Boyce in his commentary said, it suggests not only that Christians were one in heart, that is, one in their emotional bonds with each other, being committed to the same thing, but also that they were thinking along the same lines, and they had the same theology, their same understanding about the God that they were praying to and were devoted to. And here's what happens next. When you have this unity, this is what happens next. They're so unified under the banner of Christ and His mission that the stuff of earth actually fades. It's not that it has no importance. It's not that there's no ownership. That's not the point. It's just that it takes its proper place in view of eternity for the one who understands eternity through God's grace. Verse 32, they were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The teaching here is not some kind of communism for a unified body of believers. Um, The teaching is that godliness or spirituality for a body of believers, as it grows, the stuff The things of earth just aren't as important. We don't hold on to them as tightly. And if we see need and we have an ability to meet that need, we're fine giving it. We're fine contributing towards it. Of course we would. We're kingdoms of eternal heaven. We're just in this earth for a short time. If we have a brother or sister in need in some way, we can help them with that. We wouldn't even think twice. That's the beauty of the unity that comes uh, from the Holy Spirit through Christ in the body of believers. Instead of materialism, which is a belief that materials will give us happiness and security. Instead of that, we're dedicated to the eternal so that those things become tools. They could be good tools. They could be enjoyed, but they're shared when the need arises. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that of any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Their spiritual focus and unity help put the stuff of earth in its right place. You know, regularly giving, one of the graces of the Scripture to the people of God is tithing and giving. It's not just to make the church run or pay the pastors and things like that. I mean, we're grateful for that. However, the reason is it puts things in right order. It's like a priority. Like, that's the first thing. 
God, it's all yours, and you're just calling for some of it to be contributed to this, um, because that's going to help the whole of the body receive the benefits that the body promotes and produces based on God's Spirit's working. But there's also those chances for specialized giving when we support missions, or the deacons fund, or the tuition fund for, to help people with heritage. Um, other specific things that come up that you all, and I know this body does um, just privately with, to help people in the body out with stuff material. Unity. You know, there are really two essential pursuits for our church in a sense, if you think about it. I mean, there's many ways to say it. Our mission says it. But really, when you think about it, it comes down to pursuing this doctrinal purity. What does the Bible say about God and His gospel? But also this loving unity that God calls His people who are unified around Christ to be towards one another. This doctrinal purity and loving unity that we want to express in the body of Christ. So about a year ago, thinking and praying about this topic, I asked Pastor Nathan to preach uh, a topical series as he went through, a topical textual series, which he's been doing, on Christ Commission unity. Because it's, it's, I'm convinced by Scripture, as are the leaders, that, that we have to be unified around Christ and then working on that loving unity between each other. They go together. And so his sermon series started with John 17, Christ Commission unity. Then he talked about threats to unity, then battling bitterness, genuine love promoting Christ Commission unity. I mean, it's uncomfortable stuff. And that's why I had him do it. You know, it's just every other, you, you go ahead and you talk to him about not getting along, um, <clears throat> about us not getting along, whatever. Um, it's real. We have to, you have to have those meetings as family sometimes just to talk about people aren't getting along. We need to get along. And so laying those throughout just promotes that in our church. And then he emphasized Matthew 18, how to take care of different uh, things that arise among believers in the body of Christ. Unity requires pursuing and restoring sinners is the title of one of his sermons. Unity requires reconciling relationships through forgiveness. If we are forgiven and we say we're forgiven in the gospel, we should show forgiveness to others. And then the last sermon he preached in the series so far was eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So as a church, as we walk through the Scripture, we grow in what God has taught us about Himself, we also must be working at relationship and unity so that we can live out the things that we're hearing taught. And as God grants us unity and obedience, the world will take note by God's design, only by God's design, and see that Christ is who we say He is, that God did send Him for the forgiveness of our sins. I'll close with this reference. What we have in the book of Acts chapter 4 is almost exactly what Jesus prayed for not too many months probably before this in John 17. Listen to what his prayer is. He's praying about the apostles having unity, and then through the apostles, those who come to believe that they would have unity too. So, for a very important purpose, he says in John 17, I do not ask for these only, the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Through this unity that we display, people will see the truth of Jesus. Verse 22 of John 17, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Brothers and sisters, may Redeemer bear this same kind of characteristic. This is, in Acts 4, a gospel-committed, spirit-filled, biblically bold, unified body of Christ making an impact 
in the world around them. Let's pray. Oh God, please send your spirit so that we might bear the characteristics that we have just witnessed in this text. Uh, May we be a church that is gospel-committed, spirit-filled, biblically bold, unified in Christ, and according to your grace, making an impact in the world for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We get to respond with a hymn I normally put at the beginning